Hi everybody, it's Luke. Uh, welcome back to the Moments Podcast. I'm here today with Chris. Uh, Chris is a friend now, I think, um, having gone through this uh, journey with each other of building a company for the last few years. Um, Chris runs ThriveMap and uh, many of you probably don't know him as well as I do. So Chris, I'll get you to introduce yourself and a bit about ThriveMap if you don't mind. Yeah, thanks Luke. So I'm Chris Platt, co-founder at ThriveMap. Um, ThriveMap, we, we create personalized pre-hire assessments for volume hiring. So these take the form of work simulations that take candidates through a digital day in the life experience of a job um, as part of the, the hiring process. Um, so um, yeah, that's what we do. Cool, okay. So normal format, I've got a, a bunch of questions for you uh, that hopefully will be nice and interesting. Um, so let's, let's crack on. Um, so the role of hiring is evolving quite a lot, and especially in times as they are today. Um, and one of the things that would be good to get your kind of advice on is how do you create a fair, kind of consistent and cost-effective hiring process? And what, what are the kind of key things that people need to uh, consider? Uh, yeah, so there are a few things to unpack there. So um, I think any company that does volume hiring, uh, and by that, Lucy, I mean hiring a, a number of people each year into a specific role type, knows that hiring consistency can change wildly from manager to manager. So one of the reasons for such inconsistency is that we're, we're heavily affected by cognitive biases when making hiring decisions. So, so these biases and these inconsistencies make most hiring processes deeply unfair. Um, so I, I can give you some examples of that. I mean, that, that there really is a, a huge body of evidence to, to suggest this, but we, we did some research um, earlier this year, actually, um, and we asked managers about when they make decisions on interview. So uh, most interviews are decided in the first 10 minutes, um, and actually 91% of them are decided within 30 minutes. So if you can think about the job of HR or, or the job of talent acquisition as designing kind of robust hiring processes um, to help their business make um, the correct hiring decisions, and then you have nodes in that network that are just making decisions in, in 10 minutes, the majority, and it, it, it kind of really defeats the purpose of a lot of the work. It unpicks a lot of the work that HR have done. Um, the second thing would be around you know mistakes so what what leads to to hiring mistakes and um out of our respondents um nine in ten managers admit um to to, to making a hiring mistake it's 91 percent, and over half of these say it was because they trusted their intuition when making the decision um now we know that intuition leads to uh, mistakes and, and actually what was interesting when we dived into the demographics was that generation z managers so 18 to 24 year olds are five times more likely to trust their intuition um, than, than um, the average so um, it, it, that might be a, a question of an experience but what we are really conscious of at ThriveMap is helping organizations to make fairer, more objective hiring decisions. Um, and um, you know, we do that through technology, but there's a lot of other ways to do it as well through tech training and, and other tools and processes. Um, the last thing is, is the obvious one, which everyone talks about, which is the concept of kind of bias. And, and the most visible area is on um, kind of CV selection. So a BBC investigation revealed that if you apply to the same job with a CV with the name of Mohammed, you're three times less likely to get an interview than if you applied with that same CV but with the name Adam. So yeah, so, and, and there's there's countless, that, that study of uh, names on CVs uh, has been done with pictures as well. 
and there's countless evidence to suggest that's true. Now, um, so I, I think the question here is around, okay, um, how do we reduce bias? And that, that, that goes beyond just looking at kind of removing names from CVs. There's a whole kind of raft of things that need to be addressed. But um, your, your second point was about being cost-effective as well. So we need to ensure that our hiring prices are fair, but they're also cost-effective. And, you know, the cost of failed hires are, are really big. We've, we've actually um, compiled lots of data from uh, different sources, the Office of, Na Office of National Statistics, uh, Oxford Economics, etc. And that we've kind of worked out the cost of failed hiring is just over £30,000 on average. But for minimum wage jobs like retail and hospitality, it's more like um, £12,000. Um, we've got a calculator actually on, on our website uh, if any of your listeners want to calculate it for their business. So we, we need to kind of figure out as, as HR and as talent leaders how to demonstrate um, a cost-effective recruitment process but it's also fair and just. Um, and in terms of metrics to measure that, I'm not sure we should have metrics in place to measure fairness in the recruitment process. You know, I, I feel like that should be a question of kind of reviewing it, capturing data and listening to feedback and, and then changing it when we all agree that it's not as fair as it could be anymore. Um, yeah. I think the danger with metrics, and I'm sure you've seen this, is um, it can do a whole lot, load of other things. So the big company who I've been speaking with um, for a few months now and their HR director is, is obsessed with improving one metric, which is the percentage open job rate. So, so their thinking is that if the percentage of open jobs is low in the business, then that's a symptom of people you know, staying longer, performing well, etc. Now, as a metric, it kind of, yeah, I understand it, it makes sense, but it's, it's really dangerous because there are many ways to achieve that metric. So you can achieve that with a crazy high turnover. It's just that your recruiters are just filling the jobs in, in one or two days. Yeah. And if you think of that from a customer service perspective, it's really counterintuitive to, to the goal. Um, so I think we really need to be careful about, about kind of putting metrics in place and just make sure that um, you know, the second order consequences of, of that aren't impacted. Yeah, it's fascinating how, like, as you as you hear threads like um, agile, as you think about metrics uh, and the positioning of like a north star metric, which is in essence what that uh, mm. HR leader is trying to do, is try and pin one single thing that kind of layers down into all of the other influencing drivers. Um, that if you can fix that one thing, um, then it all everything else will fall into place. Um, and I guess people analytics to an extent is trying to yeah, provide a richness of data and yeah. a view of the kind of KPIs and metrics that influence this stuff. But yeah. it's a good example of how data doesn't rule any, everything, right? It's just one additional information source in which we can get better with than the only one that tells all, tells all of the story. Yeah, definitely. I, and you, you mentioned North Star there. And I think it's a really interesting... <laughs> concepts and but I, I feel like the north star shouldn't be a metric it should be a um it should be something that they stand for and i think recruitment teams in particular often get bullied by other departments i think they fall into a trap of having to justify their existence um by and, and, and kind of putting metrics thrust upon them like cost per hire in time to hire yeah. i think if you had a talent leader who said actually i stand for creating a fair hiring process and and um I, and that's what I stand for. You know, my, my North Star here is a fair process that delivers great candidates. And yes, I'm going to track some metrics such as you know, retention, new high performance. But I, 
if they stand for that, then I think they'll fare better in front of a manager who just wants to circumnavigate their process for an agency candidate or, um, you know, uh, for a capricious metric that an HRD wants to put in front of them. I think if they can turn around and go, well, we'll know that, that my North Star is a fair and just hiring process, first and foremost, and the metrics are second order uh, to, to that North Star, I, I think they would fare better. It's, it's, it's for me it's a brand and a values question actually which is what do you given hiring is probably one of the first points of interaction because you've got the attraction piece in there it's how does the brand showcase itself and what's most important to it and yeah. i think what you're talking to is like significant brand differentiation or what showcasing right up front what's most important to the company it's an interesting really interesting one um a question that just is top of mind, probably for me and everyone at the moment, is one of coronavirus. And this will be a kind of stamp, a moment in history in which um, I'm sure we'll all remember. Um, but how, how does that impact things? Like my, um, my brother works in recruitment and he said to me that the kind of job volume has remained fairly constant. The hiring process literally overnight went from you've got to travel to the office to now all happening via video conference um but many of these things still apply right or probably are even harder in a new context of video when you look at fairness and consistency um etc what are your thoughts on that yeah so um yeah i think for reference we're we're recording this on march 26th so we're <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're, 2020 we're, 2020 <laughs> yeah um so so it's a significant period of time and i think the decisions we make now are going to affect you know things long into the future and and at the moment no one knows what the future is going to look like so i'm really hesitant to 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 be a, a false prophet um, but we're actually we're, we're starting some some research um, into how this crisis is affecting recruitment leaders. Um, I'd say there are some fairly safe assumptions to make from the conversations we've had so far. So, firstly, the candidate market is going to increase. You know, as, as people get made redundant or they get furloughed, and you know, there, there was someone shared on LinkedIn, an ATS provider had half a million job applications last week for a UK retailer. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, these retailers are hiring aggressively, but. I think the challenge with people, um, or, you know, unemployed or on furlough or just worried about their job security is that they're going to be applying for jobs and you can decide who to interview on their past experience by the strength of their CV or the strength of a video application. But both of those take time to review. Um, you know, you, the alternative is you could ask them to take a 10, 15 minute assessment and get them ranked in order of suitability. And we feel that's better because you're rating people on their present ability and not their past experience. Um, so I think, first of all, the candidate market is going to require that tools and processes come in place that you know helps keep things going efficiently but also it's an opportunity now to make those processes fairer and more just um secondly the jobs themselves i mean there's a real possibility that many jobs will change so you know temporary measures tend to become permanent and that's um probably means we're going to need to reach a new consensus on what to look for in new hires um so it now is actually a good time for talent leaders to look at recalibrating their job specs and their ideal candidate profiles especially for volume roles um and go actually you know are the things we were looking for before this crisis the same you know what what has changed about that what do we need to communicate about how that job is different and and similarly should we um, be looking for new skills because I think what you're going to get is a lot of people coming into different industries for the first time uh, and again their CV is not going to be the predictor of performance that we all 
uh, rely upon. Um, so a much better way of predicting that performance is going to be actually taking them through an assessment that hopefully educates them on here's what your life's going to look like in the role and enables that candidate to, to self-select out. Um, mm. So I think, I think there are some fundamental changes that are going to happen. Um, yeah, so, but, but again, it's difficult to predict. Yeah, cool. Um, one of the things you said um, in your answers to the last question was um, the right hire. So HR defining processes to give consideration to who is the right hire. Um, it it kind of made me question a couple of things, which is um, like the traditional like workforce planning model is around organizational requirements for capability. Um, and uh, look mostly for the search of capability, therefore, within an individual. But what's happened is we've got to this world in which um, there's a division of labor, right? So the new operating model is we divide and conquer the specialist groups within a operating function of a team, which delivers that capability now. So it just made me question, like, are we talking capability and ignoring relationship and how that person fits into the team are we talking about the individual that we're hiring for or the balance that they provide or the complement to the team in which they have and therefore how how can hr being a be in a position in which they know what is right given all of these kind of micro cases rather than a cookie cutter plan yeah, yeah. so um I'm not sure I know the right answer in terms of the um, relationship fit versus the the job fit and the comparison fit and how those things should be weighted. And and I think, you know, there are a lot of organizational psychology graduates out there that that should probably be looking to find that that (laughs) out. Um, There's an interesting framework that, that we discovered along the way. So, uh, for your listeners who don't know me, I know you do, but my background was I, was I was in recruitment. I worked in executive search for 10 years. And during that time, I became interested in this kind of concept of authenticity and transparency and hiring authentically. So I'd see companies talking about their culture and then I'd meet employees who'd say something completely different about it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the cold face of my work really became driven by people and companies being more transparent and authentic with what they're actually like. And that led me to start a business called Talent Rocket, which was a culture matching recruitment marketplace. So the aim was helping people find companies aligned with their cultural preferences, their work preferences. And that turned out to be a little bit more complex than we originally thought. So <laughs> we, we had the aim of cutting through the noise of this employer brand you know, rubbish and getting companies to showcase their real identities to the world. Now, um, I think how that ties in with that, we, we then kind of pivoted to a model where we started asking candidates on our platform, what is your ideal work environment? And we had a bunch of questions that we designed um, to kind of put a taxonomy on cultural preferences at work, um, work styles, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was driven from some research from a, uh, a doctor, uh, I think a professor of management in HR, Dr. Amy Christoph Brown. And she talks about this concept known as person environment fit. Um, which is, you know, kind of the whole question about um, ecological validity. Is this person a good fit for the environment? Mm-hmm. That's broken down into four areas. So person job fit, person organization fit, person group fit, which is the team, and then person manager fit. And when we launched Talent Rocket, we were in, really interested in this concept of person organization fit. So, you know, does this person fit in the organization? But we realized quite quickly it's really difficult to do that within a framework. Um, and actually an organization is a whole kind of, microcosm of, of different microcultures so 
um, it became just practically quite impossible. So then we started to look at person group fit uh, and person manager fit. And the idea was that, you know, you can kind of see the candidate's preferences and see if it fits the team's preferences and, and how the manager manages that team. But the idea of person environment fit is, is actually only a small piece of a much larger mosaic, which is, does this person have the right capabilities and the right motivations to want to do the work in the first place? And it's, it's kind of like the icing on a cake. It's kind of tasty and it's maybe the best bit, but you won't just want to eat icing. You know, it's not, it's not the cake in yeah. itself. And when we do our workshops with clients to design uh, assessments and we first start with the ideal candidate profile, we leave it up to the company to decide how much weighting they want on the individual capability attributes versus the commitment attributes versus the cultural attributes. And in the vast majority of the cases, you know, the, the capability makes up 80 uh, plus percent of that pie so you know having someone with the raw ability to do the job is absolutely critical when you design the assessment but yeah you still want to dive into the the icing on the cake a bit further down the line cool okay interesting um and then um maybe jump into a new topic which is just around job specs and job descriptions um and you talked about them in the answer to your first question too, which was uh, how much kind of bias there is in the, the first presentation that you have as an employee of uh, you to the world in the context of work is your CV. Um, and you talked about how much bias there is. Um, it'd be interesting to give, share some thoughts on how it can be kind of reworked so that the employee has the enough opportunity to sell themselves and show that they are differentiated and not just words on a page, but at the same time, not further exaggerate the bias challenges that we know exist today. Yeah. So how, how, how should be people be thinking about to apply for a job here? Um, you should present yourself in this kind of way, or um, as an employee, how do you give yourself the best chance of success? We came to the conclusion at five map with all the investigations we did in terms of, um, different tools out there to select and assess people that the best way to assess people is to um, see them how they work and operate within the job um, now um, the closer we can get to reality with our assessment methods mm -hmm. the better our decision is going to be and the reason why that's important is because um, a cv as a as a potential predictor of future performance is a pretty unreliable um, measure and reliable metric mm -hmm. um, so judging who to invite into interview based on someone's cv and all the information on there um, isn't going to be your best shot so if you can take candidates through anonymously indeed um, a, an assessment that ranks how they performed in that job in a virtual way if it's impractical to do it in, a, in, a, in an on-site way then you're hopefully going to get a much better um, kind of selection criteria from that point onwards in terms of the face-to-face -face interview or, or you know in, in today's world it's now going to be a video interview in terms of who then gets selected yeah. um that process um is is up for debate i mean largely companies that use you know video and, and they use asynchronous video um to quickly screen candidates out really what you're doing there is that is so open to bias it's ridiculous you know people watch these videos for seconds and then kind of you know progress don't progress etc there's yeah. not a deep thought that's going into how they've responded to those questions it's very it's much like taken on first impression. reaction right yeah hugely i mean that I, I see the 
I see one benefit in terms of going, well, okay, yeah, you know, I get to see the person rather than just looking at them on paper, but that just opens up a whole uh, raft of new cognitive biases. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so I genuinely feel like if you can take people through an assessment um, that, that's blind of their name or, you know, blind of who they are as a person, their background, and it just judges them on the attributes that you've said, we are really looking for these things in new hires, that's a much fairer way to assess people. One of the things I've enjoyed talking to you most about is like uh, this consideration for culture fit. Yeah. Um, and I wrote a blog once around the values of the FTSE, I think it was the FTSE 250 businesses, the top track 100, and then um, the top 100 companies to work for and looked at all of their values mm. and which of, um, how different were their values? How much personality was expressed through the brand in the way in which it was positioned um based upon the values that they talk about on their careers page um most of them quite a high proportion of them diluted to the same which was around integrity or commitment or collaboration or to that ilk which kind of makes it difficult to know whether you are a culture fit for everyone or actually nobody um it'd be really good to get your views on um how a culture fit assessment kind of helps meaningfully align people's values with the organization's values and, and, and a sense of that realness that you talked about in your on your previous answers yes yeah, so, so we have culture as one of our kind of three c's in our, our ideal candidate profile so we've got capability which is can they do the job commitment is do they want to do the job and culture is you know are they a good fit for the for the environment um and I actually think it's probably more important or certainly just as important that candidates know what your values mean in practice than whether candidates fit those values. So most values are totally generic. You're right. I mean, they're a common rule book to live by the most decent people would adhere to whether they were there or not. Um, so if the company can give candidates an example of why a value makes them different, then that becomes interesting. And, and better still, if they can design an assessment method to test whether someone is aligned, e.g., you know, what would you do in this scenario where there's a cost to doing things in a way that reflects that value, then that's better still. So, you know, most values, however, are just meaningless because companies haven't thought about real examples. So an assessment of values is just a subjective nonsense. You know, for most companies, it's rejecting someone because they don't think they reflect in the values. It's just another reason to discriminate. Yeah. Um, so what we, what we do is, is, is we don't just accept the company saying, we want people that align with our values. These are our values. And we go, okay, here's a question bank of questions. We go, okay, well, what does that value mean to you as a business? What's your definition of it? How does it show up at work or in this job? Um, what's a real example of when someone's been faced a choice? And if companies can't, provide that then then we we just don't include it in the assessment because it's not something that that is fair on candidates so what we've been trying recently is more a case of companies going look here's a value of ours and and have you worked in this environment or or, or have you worked in a in a place where that's been been the norm before yes i have and i liked it yes i have and i didn't like it no i haven't but i think i'd like it no i haven't and i don't think i would like it and I think that's a better place to start is that you can have a manager having a conversation. So, okay, I can see you've never really worked in a place that's been a bit like this before. What do you think it's going to be like? And you can have an open, honest conversation about it rather than you know, trying to subjectively make a, a judgment call, which is going to be hugely inconsistent from manager to manager. Yeah, interesting. Very interesting. I'm going to pick up on one of the other uh, C's that you've mentioned, if that's okay, Yeah. Um, which is commitment. Um, so... How, how do you make sense of that and assess for it? Um, it'd be really 
like commitment is, I guess, yeah, hard because in six <laughs> months' time, how do you know that they're still going to be committed? Or if average tenure is three years in the company, how do you know that they're still going to be committed? Yeah. So in an assessment, we typically test knowables. So it's knowables about the role of the company. Um, and it's knowables that will be on the job spec on the careers page. So has this person just clicked apply, you know, and they apply to 10, you know, 10 other jobs at the same time. They didn't read the job spec or the career site, or have they put some thought into it, you know, and it's usually a low scoring error in assessment, but it's important if you've got two candidates with the exact same capability levels and a good cultural alignment, one candidate has done loads of research in the role of the company, another's done nothing, you might edge the one that's done more that's done more research than the other. In terms of long-term commitment, though, you know, we, we don't have a crystal ball. Um, psychologists don't have a crystal ball on that either, uh, although some people will, will talk about motivation models. But what we do, though, what can be quite interesting, and again, this is kind of the value of having an assessment partner is that we use the data we get back from the company on post hire outcomes and then we look at their assessment questions and we look for patterns so are people staying longer and performing better because they're scoring more highly on particular attributes or particular questions then we we can make then suggestions to the company on how to improve their assessment and improve the predictive validity of it over time and if the business driver is to ramp up you know, retention is it's to find people who are more committed or whatever that goal is. Um, you know, we could talk for, for hours about this, I'm sure, if you could tie it to engagement data. Yeah, um, yeah indeed. <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's a case of going, okay, well, what's the, you know, what's the data saying and how, how can we kind of drive that metric up for the company by, um, you know, adjusting the assessment, um, iterating the assessment to, uh, to, to achieve that business outcome. Cool. Um, I, I've got... Um probably what might feel like a near impossible question for you right now, yeah. um, which is um, what does the future of pre-hire assessments look like? Um, and what do you think the role is that it plays in the future of work? Yeah. So um, we kind of, we, 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 we touched on that earlier that you know, at the moment you'd be a, a fool to predict what's going to happen, <laughs> um, you know, with, with this situation. I think in terms of before this happened, I, I would talk about a couple of things. So, you know, I, we see an opportunity to, for virtual reality assessments to really take off. I mean, our goal as a business is to create real life work simulations. So it's an obvious medium for us to explore when it, when the time is right, you know, when it has its iPhone moment, um, yeah. which I don't think is going to be, um, be yet, but it, it will be soon. You know, that if you can kind of put on a headset or, or, or whatever and kind of take a digital day in, in life of the job, you're going to get an even better sense of whether as a candidate, you would like that job or not. Um, but I think regardless of this um, current crisis, I, I've, I very much have come to the realization that the future of recruitment should be, being driven by human controlled systems and processes to make decisions on who to hire. So uh, let me kind of talk you through my logic. So okay. sm small individual bias leads to large collective bias. So if you can reduce the amount, the number of nodes in the network, e.g. the number of managers making individual hiring decisions, you reduce the amount of bias in the system. And if you reduce this, then you can improve the consistency of decision-making. So if you can instead focus your energy on improving and feeding data into the decision-making system, particularly obviously for volume hiring to improve that accuracy over time. I think we'll get to post, you know, it will get to better post hire outcomes. Ultimately your new employees will be selected without the need for managers to get involved at all. And instead your managers can invest that time and that cost into training people, onboarding people, you know, listening to people and, and other good stuff. So for me, I, I see the opportunity to create systems that 
we still as humans control. I don't think it's the AI play that everyone talks about. I think instead it's full transparency. These are the things we're measuring for this role. And we're all going to contribute our ideas into that system. And the more data we get back of candidates completing the post-hire outcomes of those candidates, we can improve that system over time. And, and for me, that's the future of, of talent assessment. And a question for you then, which is, so we talk about how important relationships are at work. Yeah. And the, the interview is quite an important, acknowledging all of its faults and the hiring process and all of the challenges that sit around it. It's kind of one of the times in which you'll often meet the person that's going to be your future boss yeah. and probably often someone that's in the team and maybe a more senior member of the team or whatever. If, if you start to work them out of the process to create some of these other upside opportunities that you talk of, like where and how are relationships really built then yeah so so what about this though what about instead of it being an interview it's a getting to know you session you know what what about instead of the candidate being nervous and, and trying to you know think of their rehearsed answer to what was the you know the biggest weakness or whatever it yeah, is yeah. what if it was just a conversation saying look you know here's we're really excited to have you on board here's what you're going to be doing xyz or you know we're really excited that you're interested in the role here's what you'd be doing in the role you know before they've been hired rather than it being a i'm here to judge you because look the vast majority of interviews are really poorly skilled and they don't do it every day and it's much better to invest in the systems that, that can improve over time than constantly have people making you know cowboy decisions so yeah for me i just think that's a the better way okay fair one um last question then would just be uh, a, a sense of your kind of top tips couple two or three maybe uh, for people listening around kind of authentic talent assessment and and some of the things they could put into practice yeah. tomorrow cool so um the first tip for me would be to ask a question uh when you're next hiring and we we talk about this kind of question in our workshops which is if you if you hire for a job if you picked 100 people off the street and you put them into this job why would 90 of them not be there in a month's time and i think it, we overcomplicate things. I think you should start there. So when you're creating your job specs, just start from that position. Hopefully you'll get a priority list of things that really are essential. Um, now there might be a second question to that for knowledge workers, which is, you know, once you've had your 10 people who are uniquely qualified to do that job in front of you, why would someone choose to leave? And it may be about the manager's style, the colleagues in the team or the organizational culture. But, it, but I think, you know, investing time in, in first establishing why the 90 would leave is a, is a fundamentally important use of time. Um, next tip would be around design better, more practical selection methods. So often people look at things going badly with recruitment and they jump to conclusions. So, you know, they say we're looking for the wrong things or asking the wrong questions or we're looking in the wrong places. But actually, you're often looking for the right things. You're just measuring them in a really crappy way. So it's, it's much better to see someone doing the job than it is to ask people you know, a competency-based question. You know, if you're a knowledge worker and, and you're on a distributed team, which I think is going to become more and more common in, in yeah. the short term, then you know, set that person some written communication challenges. It's more important they're a great communicator than it is that they can reel off a rehearsed answer. So I think kind of more practical selection methods and really thinking about those deeply. How, how, how does this thing we're measuring show up at work and how do I measure that is a much better way than, than asking questions. Um, and then the last tip would be around, you know, for, for recruitment leaders, it's about playing a long-term game. So 
it takes the same amount of time to hire the right person as it does to hire the wrong person. And the short-term game is how many candidates can we attract into our funnel? What positive messages can we tell everyone about how great our company is to work for? And the long-term game is, you know, what's real about who we are today? You know, what do we not want to hide from candidates about who we really are? And if candidates withdraw because of this, then that's fine because you were playing a long-term game and, and you know, what you built instead was trust. Um, so really, I, I'd encourage people to be as transparent about what's bad about working in their business as well as what's good um, as early as possible in the hiring process. Cool. That was, that was strong. Brilliant. Strong tips. They were good. <laughs> they were very good. Um, thank you ever so much for making the time um, to not quite join me in person, but join us on the podcast. Um, it was a really interesting chat. We'll have to uh, we'll have to catch up virtually. Um, it, a it, virtual it, beer, virtual beer. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've downloaded this house party app. This yeah, is, it's um, madness, isn't it? It is madness, and and again, it's it's one of those things where in normal times you would look at it and go, oh, I would never download this. I would never want people to know who I was talking to. Yeah. Uh, but now and, and join them, I'm uh, interrupted. But now it just seems like the thing to be done. So uh, yeah, maybe let's get a let's get a, a drink. Uh, <laughs> a house party. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wicked. Thanks ever so much for joining, Chris. And I'll uh, I'll speak to you again soon. Cheers, Lee.